Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic of giving in to the wrong things. And there's a Greek word for this that we're going to introduce right away, and then we'll define it later on. It's called akrasia, and we often translate this as weakness of will or failure to follow through on things. You can also translate it as a lack or loss of self-control. And it's something that there was a lot of debate about, actually not just in ancient times, but all the way down to the present. Some people say that it doesn't really happen or exist. Uh, but I think that we all experience it at one point or another. And what, what do you think, Dan? Well, I have a number of papers that I wrote at like 3 a.m. in college. So, yes, <laughs> I think there is something to it. Now, why, why would that be particularly relevant to lack of self-control or loss of self-control? It sounds like you actually exercised <laughs> self-control to get them done, right? Yeah, well, at the very end, you know, when you have a, uh, a deadline fast approaching, uh, the, the uncomfortableness of that tends to outweigh the uncomfortableness of not doing it in the first place. You know, I've heard quite a few people over the years say that they, they work better under deadlines. That's usually mm -hmm. the tagline for it. Right. And I don't know that they actually do better work, like better quality just, work under the deadline. They're just forced to do it. Yeah, they actually get it done. Right. <laughs> so, so something uh, something external motivates them, and maybe it's fear, or shame, or one one of these other negative emotions. You know, you can also, I suppose, use anger. You know, I'm going to get this thing done by God. You know, uh, right. To force but, yourself. Like the problem with doing that is that the anger also tends to lead you down to some negative um, other conclusions while you're doing that. Yeah, it doesn't make. Doesn't make for good writing. That's that's for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think of. I don't know. Does, I uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Hunter S. Thompson seems to have some pretty decent, uh, angry prose. I remember his uh, obituary of Nixon being rather cutting. I don't know if that was from anger or just from a deep disdain. You know, I was just reading something uh, the other day. I got from our, our local library because we can do drive up, you know, pick up. Mm -hmm. And I actually walked up there because it's just a few blocks from here at the central library. So I'm doing some class videos about uh, Thoreau's civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got this uh, text and it's, it's called civil disobedience, but it's got a bunch of his other essays. And one of the ones I'd never read it before. And I didn't actually know that, that Thoreau had written on it. So, you know, I'm not a Thoreau scholar or anything. But it's about John Brown, and it was fascinating to read. You know, John Brown, the, the great abolitionist who led the raid on Harper's Ferry, but for like a decade before that had been fighting in Missouri against the, uh, the slaveholders. And it was really interesting to read in part because Thoreau was criticizing not just the Southerners, but also the Northerners for kind of like let, hanging this guy, this guy out to dry. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, he's, he's got the right, you know, frame of mind, but he's also kind of nuts. He's, you know, monomaniacal about this. He's, he's not willing to compromise. And, and uh, Thoreau actually wrote a really interesting piece in which you can tell that Thoreau is angry with his own contemporaries. Mm. But it's kind of a measured thing. It's, you know, he's not just writing, uh, you know, one, just sitting down and knocking it out in one, one single session. I think there's kind of a, 
you know, a, a measure to it, but it's mm-hmm. still, it's, it's very clear that he is, he's upset uh, about the fact that people want to write this person off who, who seems to have, you know, ha- had a lot of admirable qualities. Mm-hmm. It once again reminds me of the, um, the letter from a Birmingham jail with MLK mm. saying, you know, Oh, the, the moderates. <laughs> yes. The, the white moderates, you know, they, they, they're like, Oh, well in good time, in due time, we'll, we'll get to this. It's like, no, the time is now like, you know, uh, Equal rights doesn't wait or should not be waiting yeah, for you to I mean, feel good about it. We're not getting into the, the, the topic yet, but I think that yeah. is a, a really important point that when it comes down to matters of doing the right thing, it's almost never the right time because there's almost mm-hmm. always people there to say, no, no, let's let's look at this in another way. Let's be reasonable or, you know, don't, aren't you worried about your reputation or what might happen to, you know, your, your, your profession or your business or, you know, there's, there's a million reasons not to act, right? Right. And, so, and going back to the, the whole idea of procrastination is this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the idea here. Should we of, put that one off for a bit, or? Oh, I totally. Yeah, like <laughs> let's go to the next topic here. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to it eventually. No, go go ahead with procrastination. <laughs> um, a a internal versus external locus of control, and this is just like a locus or a center, um, and that's like, are you doing things because you are the one that's actually motivating you to do things, or are you doing? things because other people have put pressure on you to do that like i see it it became actually a really big problem here with the covid and the lockdown and that out now you don't have it you don't have to go into work and you don't have that like you know (laughs) oh you have to be there at 9 a.m or 8 a.m or 5 a.m depending on what it is like you do your job when you do your job and now um how how do you make sure that you do your work and um and i feel like it's caused a lot of people to either sink or swim to develop a, a internal locus of control or not. And maybe they're, they're having trouble retaining their jobs in this new you know, you out know, of office environment. It's interesting because the response of some employers has been to say, we need to install software to make sure that people are actually doing what they say that they're doing as they're working mm-hmm. remotely. And, and, you know, okay. So, there, there's probably some people abusing the time and multitasking and all that. But then again, you know, we also tend to try to squeeze every little drop of productivity out of, out of employees a bit more than we, we ought to. And, you know, having something like that coming in is actually going to be detrimental to developing an internal locus of control, right? Because it's just, you know, big brother boss watching you then, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, there's no external locus of control. It's all internal at that point. Or sorry, it's it's not, not internal. Right, the, it's it's yeah. all external. Uh, yeah, and and especially if you're talking about knowledge workers, you know, someone uh, that it's not you're not like not working if you're not like turning that widget every second of the day. Yeah, uh, you know, our our idea of a office, especially like um, pushing paper and whatnot, or all of that, is kind of an outpush from our factory work. Oh, tailor so, right management, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so you're, you're, if you're working if your butt's in the seat, yeah. uh, but that's <laughs> for a lot of the things that we even, do. And even those, as we know about offices before COVID, very few people were actually getting much done. <laughs> oh yeah. Like 60% of the time is not actually productive time. 
Yeah. And so it, it makes more sense to actually have an output metric. And it's like, okay, we would like you to do this much stuff. And you, you can either do it really fast or you can do it really slow. It's up to you. And I think that's a much better metric instead of like, are you looking at the screen for eight hours a day? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the idea of being forced to look at a screen eight hours a day just is such a big turnoff for me anyway. Um, you know, again, uh, if we stick on this topic before we come back to the Acrasia thing, I kind of think that if you're in any sort of knowledge or creative work, and I'm willing to extend that very broadly to like, say, just writing uh, insurance reports about accidents or something like that, mm-hmm. everybody needs some time to think things over and ruminate and I don't want to say necessarily daydream, you know, about like, let's say, winning the lottery or something like that, but but at least some downtime during the time that they're supposed to be productive. And that allows them to be, I think, more productive. You know, this this needing to have all these these uh, benchmarks met every single hour or something like that, I think actually hinders productivity when it comes we, to... We are not automata. Yeah, yeah. Although, as we were talking about uh, a few episodes ago, maybe we'll be, be replaced by more productive <laughs> AIs. So... All right, so let's let's talk about yeah. this uh, this acrasia thing. So, as I mentioned, it's it's kind of a puzzle in ancient literature, and it continues down to the present. And it, it has to do with a pretty common experience that we have. So, if we know what the right thing to do is, or you know, we know right from wrong, why don't we? Why doesn't that knowledge bring us to automatically doing it? You know, what, what's wrong with us? Are we are we stupid? Are we you know perverse? Are we misguided? And so. In, in ancient Greece, uh, there was a big, I won't say debate about this because it's more like one person brings forth one set of ideas and then a couple of years later, somebody else brings forth another set of ideas. I don't think they actually like, you know, got in the forum and said, ah, I'm going to talk about, you know, acrasia. I'm going to say there is no such thing. But they there are different viewpoints. And it, it has to do with these these experiences that we're all familiar with, like making a commitment to do something that you know is right or good or needed or you know, useful and then not following through, like writing the paper, right? It's useful for getting the grade, which is useful for getting the degree and it's, it's important and you don't want to let yourself down or your professor down and yet you wait until three in the morning to start the paper you know? <laughs> or being tempted in a situation to not do something uh, that you, you know you should do or do something that you shouldn't and then giving into it, like, you know, going to the gym and, you know, you, you feel a little tired. So you're like, ah, I'm not going to do all my sets, you know, or you, or you do a set and you're like, ah, I don't have to do 12 reps. 10 is fine. I'll just I'll just call that a full set. Yeah, but, you know, you shouldn't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Or having a couple different options in front of you. And, you know, option A is the best option. And for some reason, you pick option B. What, you know, what is going on there? Right? And we often will say things like, oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but this one time it's okay. Or, you know, it's my birthday or it's been a long week or, you know, I need to do this in order to get myself ready for the week ahead. You know, there's a million different excuses, right? You're rationalizing it in some way. And the, we, we should probably make this distinction as Aristotle does of what is a good rationalization what's a bad rationalization yeah you, you can you can use the the tricks of the trade of rhetoric to to get you to the outcome that you have decided that you wanted but it might not be actually a good reason to do so 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Just because one can come up with a plausible set of reasons doesn't mean that those are actually good reasons or, mm-hmm. or you know, that they, they fit the, the situation. And, you know, and I kind of think that people, when they tell themselves these things over and over again, like, oh, you know, it's, it's because it's Friday and I need to unwind, um, you do that often enough and that becomes a habit. Mm-hmm. You know, and not just a habit of behavior, a habit of you actually saying that very same thing. Well, it's just Friday, so I don't have to think anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess to bring out the first uh, formation of this question, I believe it's from the Mino. Um, Socrates is having a, um, a dialogue with Mino and basically makes the conclusion that uh, people do um only what they think is the good and they only do bad things because they are mistaken by what the good really is yeah they think they're doing something good when they're actually doing something bad and if they had if they had fuller knowledge about it then they they wouldn't do that bad thing and it comes up in in the protagoras and in other dialogues as well and it's a it's a pretty consistent message and you know we have all the reason in the world to think that socrates actually thought and taught this mm-hmm. to people um and what do you think about that idea do you buy that i i buy that for a a lot of things it's definitely not a every every situation falls into this okay um and so i guess um, I, I bought into it more at an early point in my life, but I... Oh, well, that's I, interesting. I, Why? Um, just because it, it, I guess, intuitively, it made a lot of sense, and it jive with some other observations, and um, then as I got more and more uh, familiar with the, the full extent of the philosophical conversation happening between uh, him, Plato, and Aristotle, that it was like, okay, they're actually making really good points, and we need to, you know, carve out a section of this where these things don't apply, because, uh, you know, as I think I spoke about last week, we're not uh, homo economicus. We're not always rational, purely, you know, beneficial beings. Sometimes we do things that are very plainly irrational. Yeah, I think I also can say that a younger version of myself was more attracted to that idea that the basic problem is is of ignorance. That you know, it's it's and and for those of us who do know the good, then because we all assume that you know we're the ones who know what the good is, then it's up to us to educate or argue or whatever it is to get to these people to see what the genuine good is. And it led me to a lot of uh, conflicts and irritation and and uh you know like, a lot why of why are you doing the right thing it's so plain or well, i can tell you yeah yeah that and 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 you get mad at people when when you're like you're just not getting it and, and mm-hmm. when you start to realize the reasons why people aren't getting it I think there's two ways you can go. You can be like, see, that's why you're a bad person. Or you can say, oh, man, that's that really sucks to be in that position where you can't actually see right from wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when you say that to people, they, they're not usually very receptive to that, though. right? And so, you know, being able to, for me, I guess you can say, being able to take a more Aristotelian position on, on these sorts of things has actually made for uh, a better life for, for me. 
And I have also come to recognize, too, where, where I was the one who was mistaken about things and doing something bad, thinking on some level it was good, um, but also, you know, doing doing bad things, knowing full well that they're bad, but being giving in at, at that point in time or having some, you know, mistaken set of dynamics going on or allowing. So, yeah, go do ahead. you want to describe the Aristotelian position here, or do we want to first hit what Plato was? Well, let's talk about Plato first, because he's kind of a bridge point, right? Mm-hmm. So in the Republic and in the Phaedrus, he he puts out an idea of the human being as not being one single unified thing, but actually having parts to our personality or soul. And mm-hmm. one part is rational, and we ought to listen to that, provided it's not been corrupted. And then we have the appetites, you know, for food and drink and sex and all sorts of other things. And these are desires. They steer mm-hmm. us towards things. They they make us want to just lay around and eat chips and do nothing all day and watch Netflix uh, way into the night, binge watching a show, you know, not realizing that we're... and watch the nice girls walk by and they're, you know, sure, short, yeah. summer dresses or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was, it, was that a Violent Femme song? That you're thinking um, of there. I, I'm thinking actually um, uh, Paint It Black by the Rolling or is it Stones? I think it's the Stones. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's the that, Doors. That is, yeah. I was no. just thinking, you know. What, could what be. song? No, no. Paint It Black, uh-huh. I think, is, is the Rolling yeah. Stones. Yeah, yeah. I, I see those girls walk but, uh, by addressing yeah, their so, summer so clothes. Doing yeah. all the things that we're, we're, we're not really supposed to do. That's what the appetites want us to do. Right. And and so the um, he uses the analogy of the charioteer here, correct? Yeah, well, that's in the the Phaedrus. Uh, you got the two horses. One's a good horse. One's a bad horse. And the bad horse wants to pull you off off in in all sorts of directions. The good horse wants to go along the noble path. And then the charioteer, the poor guy, is reason. Right. Mm-hmm. But in, in the Republic, it's just these three parts that are kind of arranged in relation to each other. And the middle part that gets angry and is concerned with honor, that's the part that really makes all the difference. Because because rationality will tell us what to do, but by itself, it can't make the desires fall into line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting idea about about things. Um, I don't know that we have to buy into it altogether, but what we do get there is that the possibility of being led astray by our desires, um, knowing what the right thing to do is, but being powerless to to enact it unless we we will or choose to do so. It almost seems like a a yes and uh, answer to Socrates is like yes, you know, people can have uh, the correct idea of what the good is and an incorrect idea of what the good is. But there's another thing that's also there that's influencing this. Yeah, actually, that that's a good way to put it. And in in the Republic, he does talk about, there's this interesting argument where he says, how do we know that there are parts to the soul? Because otherwise the soul would, would be doing all just one thing. If it can have conflict, you know, if the parts can, if, the, if we can have different themes, different being tugged in different directions, there must be different faculties, different operations going on. I, I kind of buy that, you know. I don't know that there's three. I think there's probably more <laughs> than that, but, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, if we follow Fodor that. Fodor and Carruthers. Sorry. No, go ahead. What, what oh, was that? Um, you know, something I'd like to get to later, but we might go into it right now is. Yeah, dude, um, that's, a, that's a good idea. Okay, so um, 
some of the, the more contemporary philosophy of mind uh, touches on these in a very interesting way. And um, the w one that I, I like um, is this modular theory of mind, which, uh, you know, depending on uh, what uh, philosopher that you're reading, um, has slightly different variables to it. But the, the two main guys are Jerry Fodor and Peter Carruthers. And um, kind of the the basic idea for a modular theory of mind is that we have um, within our brains, you know, at least at like neurotypical and at like uh, birth or like at least through the, the normal stage of development, there are certain portions of our brains that are modular and are for certain things. And so, yeah. for example, like the, the visual cortex is for the most part, it processes uh, the visual images from our eyes and uh, produces some picture that our conscious mind can understand. Um, and they extend these to, okay, there's like a fear response and there's like a, um, uh, a reproductive response or there's a hunger response. And these things aren't entirely individual sometimes some are subsumed within others and sometimes they are like you know venn diagrams being you know, partly uh shared overlapping with, uh, yeah. overlapping yeah um and that's the the decision that is eventually made by the conscious mind is the uh that module that basically yells the loudest within the the mind and so, like, the idea of, like, you look at fMRIs, you see which areas light up the most. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's still, this is, you know, cutting-edge science, at least, to try to um, verify these particular positions. Um, but they're, they're making a philosophical, like, we think this is how the mind works, you know, maybe not. But it, it seems to fit the criteria for the information that we currently have. Um, but, you know, this doesn't also... Uh, uh, removed from the ability that our brain is plastic and we have lots of experiences of people losing large chunks of their brain and their brain has been able to remap, um, you know, motor functions and all oh, sorts yeah. of things to places where they were, you would not find in a neuro neurotypical individual. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I have a friend who's a psychotherapist and, and he, was talking about um, working with trauma patients, mm -hmm. and you know he, he was he was discussing if if you and it was not just trauma patients he was he also trains other psychologists, and he was um, trying to get them to see that if everything is going to be essentially an amygdala response, you know you're kind of you're, you can't do much right because you're you're going to be stuck in these very fixed uh, sets of responses. If we're talking about decision making, the decision making is going to be very constricted. So you you have to find ways to um, draw a person out of out of that sort of like almost automatically going down to that that level mm -hmm. in order to be able to start to make make progress. Um, and he he was pointing out too that, you know, this isn't just a matter for patients. This is also a matter for the psychologists or psychiatrists or you know social workers themselves because they're tempted to do that sort of thing as well when mm -hmm. they encounter somebody who's like you say yelling at them in a, in a session, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I, I think there's there's quite a bit to recommend that. Um, you know, the modular thing too. I was thinking about this with with the Plato. Just to throw this out there as a little aside. 
Friedrich Nietzsche looked at the human person as essentially being sort of in a modular way, except, you know, we've got kind of a hierarchy of different interconnected things. And the, instead of it being the one that shouts the loudest, he would say the one with the greatest quanta of will is the one that, that, that runs the show. But we're all, according to him, kind of a, a mess of different stuff that's all kind of cobbled together and hanging together. And there's never going to be any complete unity to it. But we think we're unified all the time. You know? And that's kind of a, an interesting, you know, I think he's, he's partly right about that. Um, we're, we're not, we're definitely not as unified as a lot of the, let's call it um, pop psychology or folk psychology models of the human person make us out to be. Um, well, we don't have little homunculi within our heads. Yeah. I mean, I think unity is kind of like an ideal rather than something we can automatically assume about human beings. Yeah. We're kind of messy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, another thing that we, like actually turns this practical is that we do know that like the way that we learn things is through um repeated like if you if you want to like really learn something you like you go over over and over and over again um and that every time that you um go through the same pathways the brain actually builds up those pathways makes them stronger there's like parts of it where they add extra fat molecules in order to increase the um oh really yeah it it increases the um the insulation what does the fat do it increases the insulation so that the uh the bioelectrical signals can uh, go through those process those pathways um with less degradation interesting yeah so um this is the idea is whatever modules that you uh, allow to uh make your decisions for you the more apt you're going to uh go down those same pathways in the future and so 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 if you want to keep making the same say right decision over and over again mm-hmm. You need to keep practicing that in a variety of situations, right? Right. But if you keep if you if you give in to the wrong decisions over and over again, it makes it more difficult to get out of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That I mean that jibes really well with with where we're going to be going in just a couple of minutes with Aristotle, actually. Yeah. So I think we should talk about Aristotle then. Okay. So so Aristotle is you know in, in a certain way you could say that he's like. One of the first, at least in his time, scientific psychologists. He 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 devotes a bit more attention from a kind of uh, experiential phenomenological perspective than I think Socrates or, or Plato did, and and he he provides us with a more nuanced uh, way of of looking at all of this. So he thinks that it's it's true that there is there is this weakness of will or failure that we call acrasia. And that it's different from other moral dispositions. So it's not the same thing as having a vice, a, a bad character trait that is become ingrained in you. It's not the same thing as just making a mistake. Um, it's not the same thing as being placed in forced situations where you, you just have to pick you know, the least of the, the evils. And it's not the same thing as like being damaged in the sense of like having some sort of organic damage or or illness or having been traumatized or anything like that. Instead, you've got a, a person who's you know more or less capable of of making the right decisions, but they just don't. Mm-hmm. And so then you got to ask, well, why? And he he says, well, the 
what's going on fundamentally is that there's a conflict between parts of ourselves. There's, there's the rational part, or at least you know, a deliberative choice part that we call proiresis. And, and that's, that's onto what should be the right thing. I mean, it could still be wrong. And then you've got these desires or appetites, or sometimes it's, it's that, that other part that we were talking about is the spirited part of the soul, you know, wanting you to go beat somebody up or respond or retaliate. And, and there's a conflict. And, and one's saying, let's do this. The other's saying, no, no, let's do this instead. And you, <coughs> you give in to the, to the one that's lower in, in the schema. Um, and there's an opposite to this, which is what he calls enkratia, meaning self-control. It's literally self-mastery, being, being in charge of yourself. And these are, so here's where it gets really interesting with the neural pathway uh, stuff. Those are in between virtue and vice. The virtuous person finds it fairly easy to do the right thing. They're naturally oriented towards it. So if we're thinking in terms of this, this you know, sort of physical brain uh, state stuff, they've got the right neural pathways well established and all, what did you say, like they, there's, they're fat insulated? <laughs> uh, that, that is one thing that happens. Okay, so so the virtuous person has built up kind of a nexus of this, and the vicious person has built up another nexus. Mm-hmm. In between them are lack of self-control and self-control. And the person who is self-controlled doesn't yet love, you know, doing the virtuous thing, but they know it's the right thing to do, and they make themselves do it. So if we're thinking about, like, temperance, you know, an example that, that you and I have kicked around a lot before is, like, when you go to the all-you-can-eat buffet, Really, you shouldn't eat all you can eat. <laughs> you, should, you should lay down some limits. You know, maybe four plates is is getting to the extreme, especially if you're going to have like two desserts afterwards because you want to get your money's worth, right? So right. maybe you should only have three plates and a soup and one dessert. And even that's kind of pushing it, right? right. So, um, you know, if you're self-controlled, you say stop at that point, even though you want to have more. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the lack of self-control or the uncontrolled person is going to find some reason why that night they should have five plates and two desserts and three soups and I don't know, a bunch of bread treat rolls. Yourself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they may, and they may use that. Well, I've paid for it. So I have to get my money's worth right. thing as, as an excuse. But once you get your money's worth, you might be paying for it a second time later when you're feeling very uncomfortable due to your very very full belly that's a good point and and you pay for it in other coin as well i mean it's not it's not good for you physically to be eating more than you ought to so there's a cumulative effect over time you're also sort of damaging your yourself in terms of your self-control the next time that you go in right and so this is interesting that uh like Aristotle's very much like, oh, you gotta, you gotta teach your kids right early on. Very, oh yeah. And so this, this kind of makes sense that like if you can hope to instill certain things early on, it makes it a lot easier for them to actually do those good things going forward into your their lives because they've created habits of doing virtuous things and not so many vicious things. Yeah, I think from Aristotle's perspective, many of us were kind of screwed early on. And we're lucky that we've made as much of ourselves as, as we have. <laughs> so, Wait, so. was uh, Freud a fan of Aristotle then? Uh, he knew about Aristotle. Um, Freud actually also knew, knew about Nietzsche, too. Um, it's funny that you bring up Freud because my students, whenever I 
teach them about Plato's tripartite soul, mm-hmm. they've always somewhere heard about Freud and, and learned about the the id, the superego, and, and the ego, mm-hmm. and this triadic relation that Freud has. And they'll say, oh, well, Plato's basically just like Freud. And I'll say, <clears throat> well, wow. the, the, the id and, and the appetites, okay, I can see that. They're, they're kind of similar, right? Mm-hmm. The appetites can't control themselves, neither can the id. But the, the rational part of the soul, if, if, if the rational part of the soul is a superego, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. You know? mm-hmm. and, and if the thematic part is your ego, again, you're, you're going to have some problems. So they, they map on at the lower part, but they don't map on at the higher part. Yeah. But I was thinking more about the, like, everything's from childhood trauma. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean. Or a lot of his... With Aristotle, it's less about trauma. It's more about bad habits, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But that's that's actually a great question. I mean, Aristotle, this is a bit of a digression, but he does distinguish another state that he calls brutality or morbid dispositions. And he, he, of course, he says barbarians are like this. You know, look at them eating raw flesh over there on the, on the, the you know, the uh, Black Sea. And but one of the things that he brings up, and he's very specific about this, is abuse of children. Mm-hmm. And he says that this can damage a person so much that you can't even say that they're vicious because in the vicious person, that rational part of their soul is there. It's just corrupted. It's been screwed up in some way in a brutalized person. It's been like so thoroughly damaged that it doesn't really have much, much role at all. And and the person is reduced to the level of just animality, but human animality is worse than regular animals because there, there, there ought to be something else there for us you know, that would regulate things. So that kind of comes to like, there's definitely a large component of the environment in which someone is raised that will, you know, create the, the, uh, the habits of how they will be dealing with things. But then, you know, if someone really is like, Oh, well we could just like save all the kids or something by throwing them into like really nice schools. And then you get like kind of atrocities like you saw with the, Native American population here in the United States and them, you know, trying to uh, westernize them by stealing them away from their parents, putting them into boarding schools and preventing them from speaking their languages. Yeah, losing losing that connection to the people that you've bonded with early on and, you know, losing a language by which you do that. That is that is really a, a terrible trauma. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's I mean, like these know, people thinking that they're doing the right thing, the good thing to make these people better, but they're yeah. actually, you know, once again, it goes back to that. Brutalizing them. Yeah, yeah. And, and it goes back to the, the Plato, or sorry, the Socrates of like, they think they know it's right, but they don't actually know it's right. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting. When things like that happen, you can say to yourself, well, why don't you know that that's right? You know, and sometimes people will say, oh, well, we can't criticize people of the past because, um, you know, different times, different mores, different ideas about things. We don't want to be anachronistic. But historians will point out over and over again that almost every time that that we see something like that being done as a norm, there's somebody who's like, this is this is bad. You should not be doing this. You know, uh, there, there's always social critics resisting that in some way and pointing out that 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 isn't the only possible way 
Um, and I think that's, that's actually one of the really valuable things about history is bringing those other voices back to life. You know, to bring this back to what we were talking about before, um, there were a lot of people at the, you know, around the time of the Civil War who were like, listen, you know, slavery, terrible thing, but, you know, it's much more important that we keep the union together or that we have compromises about this or that, you know, we'll, we'll weed it out over a couple generations. And somebody like John Brown came around and said, listen, you know, God told me that this is wrong and I'm just going to pursue this. You know, and then he's he's looked at as as a complete madman. If he yeah. if he'd I suppose if he'd said something like you know I have a logically deductive argument for why this is wrong, uh, and he didn't bring God into the picture, maybe he wouldn't have been seen as 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 crazy. But or maybe he would. But there you know. was also lots of uh, use of religion to propo- uh, to oh to perpetuate. Keep, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And you know, uh, and so so John Brown is is a great example of somebody who didn't just like go with the mores of his time. He was mm-hmm. like, "This is definitely wrong," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the early Republicans, uh, who you know, we know uh, the radical Republicans were founded here in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. Um, well, Ripon, I think, right? Oh, is where they had their first thing. I thought there was a, a plaque downtown uh, that says like this is like maybe it was like the first like official. Uh, convention or something, whatever. That that very well could be because this is the most important city, and and we had uh, quite a few anti-slavery people come out of out of Milwaukee. But yeah, but so I mean, with any with anything, you can find somebody to say, yeah, this is this isn't the right thing to do, and maybe maybe there's like even in totalitarian societies where one of the things that's that's key to them is like driving the conscience out of people, and and making it almost impossible for them to speak up. There's still some people who are like, yep, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you, sh- you shouldn't do this. So, so we do have you know, some possibility of gaining knowledge about what's right and wrong available to us much of the time. We just often ignore it. Right. Uh, and it seems like we're in one of those uh, inflection points where certain things are, are definitely becoming, oh, well, enough people have decided this is wrong that we're actually going to make it wrong. Yeah, and, and that's um, something that I have guarded optimism about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if I were 20 years younger, I'd be very optimistic. But um, I think, you know, when you look back over history, you see how easy it is for, for things that are on the right track to fall apart or to, to go in the right. wrong directions. But, but if you look at, like, for example, um, South Africa. You know, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, shoot, he was just... Uh, Mandela was mm-hmm. a political prisoner on Robben Island, and 20 years later, he's the, the leader of the country. Yeah. Uh, of the, the most racist, you know, basis of government in the entire world to having a, a, a black president. Uh, that's, that's an amazing turnaround. Yeah, and I think that another thing that we can say about Mandela, too, was his commitment to not engaging. And this is, this is where he, he ends up breaking with his wife and the ANC as well. Um, not A commitment to, to not pursuing sort of a, okay, we're on top, now everybody's going to suffer under us kind of, kind of strategy. Mm-hmm. That you see like happening uh, you know, almost next door in Zimbabwe under the Mugabe regime, um, still, still with its effects going on today. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I mean, we're, again, we're getting far from our topic, but we could say that in a lot of cases, political leaders 
have to struggle with this issue of self-control as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do, see nowadays that... Oh, go ahead. Or as, do you do the things that you think will get you power? Do you do the things that you think will actually be right? And there's that that strong mm. pull to just, you know, oh, yeah, I can say the most uh, vile things because it's definitely going to rile up my base, uh, whichever way. Uh, and, and, you know, but is that actually going to produce the, the good rule, the, you know, a functioning government that actually provides the services that, you know, we as populists expect from that? Yeah, you know, I think, too, there, so there is that. There's the, like, you know, um, demagoguery, we, we call that. But I think there's another challenge for politicians as well, which is become, they, they say, oh, I'm going to get into this and I'm going to change the system from within. And then there's all these decisions where, like, well, if you want to move up, you got to, like, you know, do a favor for this person and do a favor for this person. And it's at the expense of somebody else. And it's usually mm-hmm. unjust in some way. Um And I think there's probably, you know, the best way to get somebody to do that, of course, is you like get them a little bit drunk and then get them into a back room and you say, you need to make a decision about this now because, you know, uh, what what side are you on? I think there's a lot of uh, tendencies towards acrasia when it comes to those sorts of little compromises, you know, and I, I think you can extend that as well to education and to the corporate world. Um, there's this tendency to cut corners and, you know, make things easier for oneself, even when one knows that on some level it's wrong. And if you do it long enough, it becomes, you know, second nature. We're we're such social creatures that like, you know, someone like comes up to you and say, Oh yeah, you know, you got the power and we're friends and can you just do this little thing? It's not much. And, and that's, that's that, that first little step that chinks away at what you, you know, your ideals are. You, you know, give in, and then you give in a little bit more and more, and it, you know, I guess it snowballs. I don't want to make a slippery slope argument, though. You know, when I was teaching in in uh, Indiana State Prison, it was very important not to accept any favors from a prisoner, even to the point of if they give you a candy, don't accept the candy, and you don't do anything outside of the the bounds of what your the scope of your job is for for prisoners either. And the reason is because there is a slippery slope and and not all of them. I mean, I actually met some really great people while I was teaching in the prison, but I also met some some other people who were much more questionable. And I, I met a few people where the other prisoners would say, I hope that guy never gets out because he scares the hell out of me, you know. Mm-hmm. And But it was the middle ground of the prisoners that you had to really watch out for because if you do, you know, if you do this favor, then there's two things going on. They'll say, well, if you did that favor, why won't you do this favor? It's reasonable for you to do that. And then if you don't do it, then they'll also say, well, if you don't do that favor for me, I'm going to reveal that you also did this favor and then you're going to get in trouble. So there's a a push pull. And this is how we get people, you know, carrying in cell phones and bags of marijuana and all sorts of crazy stuff where you're like, what the hell went wrong with this? You know, engaging in in trafficking. And I I don't think you have to just look at prisons in order to see that um, there are many people willing to take advantage of our acrasia, you know, if we we allow ourselves to be acratic. Some of them just you know, it's not so personally motivated, but some of them will get their hooks into you and just keep going and going and going. Yeah, it's it's got to be a I don't know, uh, I guess a high pressure teaching environment to try to deal with. Oh, in a prison? Yeah. 
You know, it, that's interesting because once you establish a reputation for not being readily corruptible, you don't have to be like pretend to be incorruptible and be the mm-hmm. you know man of steel or something like that. It's just like any other thing security oriented. Your your house doesn't have to be a castle. It just has to be more visibly secure than the house next door, and they won't break into your house. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you can say that about people's reputations as well. Once once people realize, nah, uh, this guy isn't going to take a candy from from me or do me a little favor, there's no point in trying. They're not going to waste their time on you. you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not like they respect you because of that. It's more just, you know, you're, you're not a mark. Right. So do you want to uh, hit one more topic or go to the question? Yeah. So I do want to talk about one other thing with Aristotle he he thinks that there's a number of different things that we can be we can have a lack of self-control about and and i don't think his list is exhaustive but i think it is quite interesting how he breaks it down he thinks that you know pleasure and pain like trying to avoid pain and trying to get things that we find pleasant is is like the core meaning of acrasia but the other things where we have a lack or loss of self-control that he lists are are these anger and this is where he actually he likes makes an, makes an argument that well acrasia with respect to anger not so bad as with respect to pleasure because anger at least is rational you know th- that's mm-hmm. a little bit debatable um, love of victory or success philonikia in in uh, Greek okay nikia or nike victory is, yeah and so beating other people right when we want to be right when we want to uh, go faster than other people, or we want to be celebrated. Even if we're actually wrong, we want to to be the one who's acknowledged as successful. Uh, money, of course, you know that's kind of a, a common thing. There's there's avarice. lots of people. Yeah, except in this case, it's not it's not the vice of avarice. It's just a it's just a, a lack of self control when it comes to this. And if you keep giving into it, you will become avaricious. Uh. But you're not yet there. You know, you're like, well, I should go to my kids' recitals, but there is this side gig, you know, and I do feel bad about it. Whereas the vicious person is like, ah, screw the kids' recital. You know, mm. everybody's got to earn as much money as possible. You know, Re- talk to the kid. Recitals don't pay for your braces you know? <laughs> or something like that. But then the other thing that he says that's really interesting, kids and parents. Now think about how many people you know, they're pretty decent people, but mm-hmm. when it comes to their kids, they will like do all sorts of underhanded things to advance their kids who usually aren't, aren't worth, worth advancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they'll do this for parents or they'll do this for other family members or friends or other relationships. And see as one portion of that is like the living the vicariously through the lives of your oh. children. And and the, seeing your yeah. children as an extension of yourself, and you know, willing to do what needs to be done to get ahead, and extending that to your children. Yeah, that's uh, but, that's a good that's a good. But point. yeah, like what is it the um, the recent ish uh, uh, scandal of like getting kids into college, uh, paying oh, millions of dollars or hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars? Yeah, yeah. Now I think some of those people were really vicious because they were like. This is what everybody does. You know, I didn't Mm. do anything wrong here. The ones that were actually saying, yeah, yeah, I know I shouldn't do this, but it's my kid. They (laughs) they could be said to be a cratic. Yeah. As well as the the people facilitating that 
would oh, also be, definitely be vicious. The ones who took the bribes, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, that's an interesting the, one. They may have been um, acratic the first time. It's like, oh, you know, uh, it's like I'm I'm hard up for money or something, and I have this access, and well, like what, what one little thing, one little favor is not going to you know kill me. But you know, once you do it, it becomes a little bit easier to do. And yeah, and and uh, it might have been tied in too with like you're a little bit starstruck because this is a famous person or somebody who's got some real pull, and wow, they're paying attention to me. They, they invited me out to their beach house or you know out on their yacht. Now they're now and then they're they're giving me the 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 pitch, right? right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a great yeah. example. Yeah, I you know, I patted your back. You want to pat my back? You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. good for that because if if they if they won't pat your back, then you can push them off the side. <laughs> because of the implication. <laughs> You're familiar yeah. with the. Uh, okay, so we have a question here. Hey, so I have an essay I need to write, and it's pretty personal, so it's already tough to write, but I have procrastinated for a week already, and I feel intensely guilty about the fact that I wasted all this time. Whenever I start trying to write, I just feel extremely guilty and anxious, and so I start browsing Reddit instead to distress. The worst thing is that there's no deadline, so the panic from the deadline can't overcome the negative feelings and force me to do it. I just need to finish this as soon as possible, preferably today. Do you have any suggestions on how I can overcome this guilt and start working? That's a good one. And there's two things there, right? There's the whole procrastination thing, but then there's how do I deal with the guilt? Mm-hmm. So I, you have some thoughts on this one, right? Um, like The first one is just a... You know, a simple method that I found to be very useful and like the biggest hurdle with procrastination from my experience as uh, well as, you know, from what I've read out there as uh, solutions is just getting started and you sit yeah. there and you make every excuse and it's like, Oh, well, you know, Oh, I can do the dishes. And so you go do the dishes and you know, they sit down and you're like, and I can fold my clothes and you go and fold your clothes and you come back and the dog needs to go for a walk and, and I need to take a shower. And it's like, Oh, but it's now it's bedtime. So I'll just do this in the morning. Um, and the idea is to take, you know, if you see it, you, I've got a little timer here, little kitchen timer, and you just put it for 15 minutes. It's the, the Pompadouro method. Um, and you just, you say, I'm going to write for 15 minutes and you don't stop writing for 15 minutes. And once you've done that for 15 minutes, um, then you, you can go on to the rest of it. it it's this idea of this, this giant insurmountable thing, and you're breaking it down to, oh, I can definitely write for 15 minutes. That's easy. I can do that. That's true. And once once you've gotten started, uh, oftentimes it can it can go uh, <laughs> much, much uh, more smoothly. Although another thing that, that a lot of writers have problems with is they write something and then they immediately start self- editing, self-criticizing, and that's not a good thing to do either, right? When, when I'm working with, with people, I always say write more than you need because then you can trim it. You know, mm -hmm. don't, don't like uh, say, oh, this is garbage. I'm not going to put this down on paper because that just stops you. Right. You know, you, you want to get into that zone, that flow state. Just, just write, I guess. That I have been in and that is really enjoyable. Um, when I would write student papers, I would uh, 
Now back then I was I was smoking, so I would like get myself a couple packs of cigarettes, or I'd roll up a whole bunch of cigarettes, and then I'd start making pots of coffee, and I'd have all my like research materials piled up around me, and I'd just start writing, you know, and I'd put some music on too, mm-hmm. um, and I would I would just go, and it might take me eight hours, it might take me twenty four hours, but I would at the the end of it have a pretty polished paper, but not completely. You know, you just get it to the point where you've got your thoughts down. And then I would crash, go to sleep for maybe 24 hours, then get up and then start doing all the, you know, making it look nice Mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, Now, that's not a great way to do things as you get older. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I can no longer do all nighters. They they kill me now. Yeah. Oh, Uh, and then I guess the other question is about the guilt, correct? Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about that? Um, I, well, like, those things that happened in the past are in the past. They are immutable, unchangeable. And the only thing that they're good for is to be a lesson for you on either what to do or what not to do in the present moment. And so if you can just let go of the past and say, I have a task in front of me. I don't need to worry about the anything that's happened in the past. I can't change it. Um if that actually, you know, th- that's like theory and you have to actually like practice that to, you know, try to, you know, put this uh, thought into action, though. You know, I think, too, with guilt, um, you, you have to ask, well, guilty towards whom? You know, mm-hmm. guilt is something that we feel relationally. It's it's not just something that we have and it, and it doesn't have any sort of you're guilty because you're worried about what so-and-so might, might think of you. And you're, you also feel maybe guilty in relation to yourself, like you let yourself down. And so, yeah, the, what you're saying is, is, is really helpful. Maybe thinking about, did you really let yourself down? Is this, is this something that you could you know, recuperate um, by actually doing it? That, that might, might be helpful as well. Um, you know, the other thing I was gonna say too, so, if you don't want to be a cratic, it's probably good to cut down on temptations. Mm-hmm. And this might be one of the biggest temptations when you're writing because we've got all these apps at our fingertips. Just I know for if, us that are not on the video, he's holding up his cell phone. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, myself, I I struggle with this. It's it's too easy to go and and look at what's going on on Twitter or what's happening on Facebook or did somebody say something on one of my videos or, you know, um, checking the news or or looking at email or any of those sorts of things. Um, It might be good to put your cell phone in another room. You know, you you can put it on on, so if, if somebody calls you on the phone or texts you, you can hear it. That, that might be one distraction that you have to put aside. Yeah. And there, there's probably other distractions, too. You mentioned, what, um, cleaning up the house, uh, yeah. taking the dog for a walk. When you're in the, the midst of hardcore procrastination, <laughs> you will find the most boring, mundane things, and that is going to be the most exciting thing you've ever done. <sighs> but I think we need to move on to our practice. Yeah. So do you want to you want to lead us through this or? Um, I, I can do it too. You can you do want. that. Yeah, let's do that. So, so um, one of the things that you can do when you're finding yourself not getting things done, not not doing what you ought to do, is taking 
a manner in which you want to develop more self-control. Like it could be the buffet, it could be going to the gym and doing all of your, your exercises, it could be calling a person who you're supposed to have called a while ago and then didn't and now feel guilty about or anything along these lines. And when you're in that situation, you remind yourself that this is, uh, this is, this is a chance that you have um, you have a goal, and this is a matter that does tempt you. By struggling against it here and now, you're not just doing it for here and now. You're helping yourself in the future. Mm-hmm. So there's there's kind of a stake that you're you're dealing with, and you can't just say to yourself, "Oh, it's just this little thing here, this little thing here." You can tell yourself, I am actually helping to establish better habits for myself. And you, and you might use that as a mantra. You could say, by choosing the right thing now, I'm choosing for myself later on. And if you do that, you know, in, in one thing, you'll learn how to do that. And then you can transfer that to other things as well. Mm-hmm. So if you can learn how to, I don't know, wash the dishes when, when they're sitting in the sink instead of um, letting them just keep piling up. <laughs> Um, or what, what are other things that we, we, we struggle with? Um, um, uh, what's your biggest, uh, weakness uh, or weakness? Um, let's see. They say you're not reading the news. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like I, I'll actually write that down on my planner. It's like, don't read the news until at least afternoon, because I know that it is something that I'm drawn towards. Uh, yeah. And, and it becomes negative both emotionally and mentally. And uh, yeah, it's not good for me. But I do it yeah, anyway. So, so when you draw yourself in, or when you, when, you, when you do that, you can say, okay, I'm setting myself a pattern for this. And then you can transfer that to whatever the next thing is. Right. And another way to look at this is through uh, like ways of reframing. Uh, oh, yeah, good. And uh, for example, uh, you can say is like, oh, all life is like, look at it as like a video game and that you have all these times that you have as examples of like, okay, I have a goal and I have times to, to uh, try to get this thing right. And it's okay if I fail, as long as I know I'm still progressing towards that goal. Or I guess um, William Irvine uh, brought out a book uh, not too long ago called The Stoic Challenge, which talks about reframing. And his added reframing is that, like, there you've got, like, um, some sort of, you know, stoic god. Um, you know, if, regardless if you think it exists or not, but he's putting challenges in front of you as a test. And so it's like he's saying here's a test and if you make it through it you become a better person that sounds good so we've got to end um, yeah so we've got lead us out final words from william somerset montheim self-control might be as passionate and as active as the surrender to passion